You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. I've had a lot of strange experiences after all these years in the film business, but I have to say the Fantastic Four ranks somewhere near the top. It's clobbering time. Like a phantom in this film. Strange. It was like a feeling that I've never experienced before. It's a piece of history. I never would have thought then, was it 20 years later, that I'd be sitting here talking about it. This thing just won't die. Expect trouble. I didn't know then, you know, all of the machinery that had been at work. It was the seedy, dark side of Hollywood. We really wanted people to see this. How many movies did Roger Corman make and never release? One. Wait a minute. Why? We're going to let them take this movie away from us and not get anything out of it? we got to show people that we made a movie. That's how you get another job. All this effort, time, and all these, all the work that went into making that film, and that pointless, meaningless. This film was never really intended to be a film. And I said, oh yeah, you watch. I think this documentary is, is I think it's about time. Hopefully, we might be like the last piece of this whole puzzle. The great untold, never seen version, the original Fantastic Four. Finally, after 20 years, this story is going to be told. Unfortunately, this version of the Fantastic Four really was doomed. <laughs> there and welcome to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to be diving into film documentaries. Specifically, documentaries that have something to do with film but not necessarily kind of like making of documentaries. There's all different types out there and we're going to cover quite a number of them. Some of them are kind of sad, some of them are kind of funny, some of them you're going to learn stuff that it's just baffling how crazy the behind the scenes uh, drama that takes place, you know, on some of these films, and some of them are even films that never got made, and it's a documentary having to do with how these films kind of fell apart. So let's begin our film documentary episode with the documentary Doomed. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The force will be with you, always.
Today we're going to take a quick look at some documentaries, specifically documentaries that have to do with filmmaking. Now, I've covered some of these in the past, briefly or extensively. The one that I can think of that comes to mind very recently is Lost Soul, the one about the making of The Island of Dr. Moreau and how the crazy behind-the-scenes shenanigans going on are more interesting than the actual movie that were made. But what I have here is a list of many, many other films, some of them that I saw pretty recently, some of them that I've seen you know, over a long period of time, and how, you know, some of these stories are just, they just kind of come out of nowhere, and they're really, really interesting. And just like this other one, sometimes they're more interesting than the film itself. Now, what differentiates most of these documentaries is that, yes, when you do have a, a film, many times, not always, but many times, uh, you will have an official making of documentary. Now, in the past... You know, I've grown up with more formal uh, making of documentaries, and they, they seem to come in different fashions. Back in the 80s, when you had a really, really big film, and to me, what, what comes to mind automatically is Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, those kind of films, where they were such high-profile films, especially by the time you got to Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, because, you know, Star Wars exploded with you know with, without much preparation for it. What would happen is that they would have a crew, you know, a behind-the-scenes crew. At least they were smart enough to try to document what was happening behind the scenes for potential, you know, marketing purposes and that sort of thing. Now, granted, again, by the time we get to Empire Strikes Back, they know they got a goldmine on their hands. Even Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, because of the track record of the, these two previous films and the directors involved and all that stuff, you know, they know that this is going to be big. They do have camera crews, you know, behind the scenes, you know, documenting the, the making of and that kind of thing. And back then, anyway, for something that huge, I mean, I, there might have been others, I just can't remember them, but definitely there was the, you know, the making of Empire Strikes Back. I know there was a making of Star Wars. I'm not sure how and when it came out. Obviously, it came out afterwards because, you know, you don't have that much precognition of how big this film is going to be. And and the quality of it is a little, a little less, if you will. You know, they don't have that much archival material other than, you know, uh, scrapped scenes or deleted scenes or, or alternate takes and that kind of stuff. But you know, when they moved on forward, they realized we better start documenting this for the sake of posterity and for the sake of, again, marketing and future films. You know, it's good to have this type of stuff. So the way that I've seen these documentaries was on TV, I believe. Uh, CBS might have been the one that had The Making of Empire, you know, the special effects and all that, especially the special effects documentary on Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Raiders of Lost Ark had one. I believe Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom might have had one too. Maybe it was a PBS one. I'm not entirely sure. For Return of the Jedi, there was a CBS hour-long one, I believe. I remember uh, Billy D. Williams hosted. The Empire one was hosted by Mark Hamill. And there was a PBS Star Wars around the time of Jedi called From Star Wars to Jedi, I think, The Making of a Saga, which was like a two-hour-long, even longer, huge documentary trying to cover the entire saga, obviously. And those were those big, big ones that I remember as far as documentaries having to do with film. Then what you also had was on cable, 
especially HBO, I think, they would run these very short, you know, again, because they have time to do filler. You know, they, you would have to fill airtime between movies. And the movies, you don't want them starting at, you know, 2.39 in the afternoon. No, the movies, they tried to kind of start them on the hour or on the half hour kind of thing. So they kind of start at a, at a decent locked time. So they would fill in in between with these little segment type of things. And a lot of times, I remember they used to do behind the scenes. You know, they would have these little behind the scenes type of stuff, the making of whatever it is that you're about to show or just shown or something that has nothing to do with whatever is before or after that. And that kind of material would also find its way to DVDs later. Not so much VHS, but DVDs. When you had DVD revolution take place, which again was pre <laughs> was pre-staged by laser discs, the concept of supplemental material started to kind of permeate home video. And all these kind of behind-the-scenes things started popping up into the DVDs, supplemental materials, the bonus materials. Sometimes they would be coincidental in terms of, well, you know what, let's take all of our press kit material, you know, the press kits, which used to be delivered to the uh, television stations, cable stations, and all that stuff, which in the past used to just be printed material, maybe a few slides, and then later on turned into full-blown videos, you know, an hour-long video of interviews that could be used as B-roll material, you know, to, to put together a segment. And in those videos, you might find a short or not-so-short documentary specifically made for the press kit. That then, again, the TV stations could use as B-roll, you know, while they're talking about the movie, they show scenes of the documentaries and that sort of thing, you know, the trailers, interviews, and all that kind of junk. You know, those would find their way into these DVDs, a supplemental material, and sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes they would exclusively make documentaries that would go on the DVDs, you know, future releases of Star Wars had tons of those documentaries. By the time we got to the prequels, yes, there was, I believe there was one making of Phantom Menace that was released possibly on Fox, because by then I think Fox was already involved on the television side. But later on, uh, for uh, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, they kind of skipped TV altogether. And whatever documentaries, I believe, were put together, they went straight to the DVD. However, once again, here we're talking about promotional documentaries on the making of the film. And that's something that's standard now. It's really, you know, there's a reason for that, for putting those together. It's part of the package of your DVD now. There really is no, I mean, I can't really think of any current modern television phenomenon or movie phenomenon where you would require or it would be profitable to put together a making of film or, or DVD or documentary or something that would air on television. There just is no interest anymore in that sort of thing, you know, for you to focus on it as a broadcast network type of event. So now the way we see these making ofs are only, you know, for home video, most likely. However, with this said, there are still tons and tons of documentaries that are out there that take a different view of the whole concept of documentaries having to do with films. So, for example, like I said earlier, we looked at Lost Souls a number of episodes ago about the behind the scenes of the making of that film and what a 
disaster, an, an insane story with the director and everything. There is a couple more that kind of fall under that condition or, or subgenre of documentary. One of them is called Doomed. Now, Doomed was the story, or is the story, of the making of the Fantastic Four, but not the Fox Fantastic Four films that have recently been put out. And not so recently. But the one that came before that, which was one that was put together by Roger Corman, you know, famous movie producer, low, super low budget, quantity, not quality <laughs> kind of guy, you know. And this is a movie that was put together in the early 90s. This is a period where Marvel didn't, uh, wasn't, Marvel was not what it was now. DC was the only major studio that had had some success, you know, with superhero films. We're talking about, you know, if you go back to the 70s, you could take Superman films, you know, through the 80s. Then you had Batman, you know, with its initial strong run and then kind of declining run. But up to that point, Marvel was just a mess. Anything they did was most likely ending up in television. Uh, I don't know if it had barely made it to the to, to film. There was a Spider-Man TV show. There was a, a Hulk TV show, The Incredible Hulk. There actually was a Captain America horrible, horrible film. We talked about this way, way in the past. Even Thor made a cameo appearance. Uh, you know, there were a number of attempts. So up to this point, they just were not... Uh, getting there. They were just not hitting any, you know, home runs on this thing. However, in the horizon, there was chatter of James Cameron possibly doing Spider-Man and, you know, some other big heavy hitters possibly starting to tap into other Marvel properties. I think uh, uh, even Black Panther, Wesley Snipes was possibly involved in a. In, in, they were mighty. They might be making a Black Panther version, and they even mentioned a Doctor Strange version of of a Marvel, you know, adaptation that was kind of you know bubbling up out there. But up to this point, they had nothing. They had absolutely nothing. So what happened is. That up to this point, Marvel had been kind of leasing out, or I don't know if, what do you call it, renting out, leasing, optioning the rights. Uh, that's what they call it, optioning the rights to do uh, some of these characters. And for whatever reason, uh, Roger Corman and another company, they hit upon or they got the rights to do Fantastic Four. And the thing about it was that the conditions of making this film, the fact that you're doing a Roger Corman film, already you kind of should know that there's something going to be a little not great about it because they're low-budget films. You cannot expect, you know, super-quality material out of a Roger Corman production. But because they were teaming up with this other company, and, you know, they did have the rights for Marvel, off the bat, they, they just they went running and started hiring people, you know, constructing sets or reusing sets, more likely. The, Corman was the, the, you know, was the king of the, the recycled sets uh, from his previous productions. And, uh, you know, all the actors and the director, everybody's gung-ho about it. And, they, you know, they start shooting this thing. But there was some kind of a clause that said that they had to start, or at least they had to begin putting this movie together before the end of the year. So... The movie is put together under low-budget conditions, and everybody's working super hard so that they can have, you know, I guess a summer release, hopefully, or, or, you know, the following year. And little by little, they start to realize that the 
producers, you know, the, 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 the distributors and everybody is kind of starting to slowly back away from it. They finish shooting barely. They don't feel like they've gotten everything they needed, as a lot of times people do. And by the time it's all said and done, they're maybe two weeks away from releasing the film and they pull the plug on it and they get noticed that, you know, Corman and his distributors uh, are not going to do it. They're going to just shelf the film. And later it's found out that Marvel, because – now, this is something that's still kind of questionable uh, to a certain extent, but it looks that way. It looks like because Marvel was looking forward to hopefully starting their own, let's say, franchise, what they have now, what they didn't have it back then, in the 90s, that they wanted to get the rights back. Uh, not only did they want to get the rights back, but they wanted to – Make sure that nothing else was put out so that it wouldn't sour people on the look of it. Granted, you put out a Roger Corman version of anything and it's just not going <laughs> to leave a good taste in your mouth. So, the thing about this documentary is that it implies and it's probably true that behind the scenes, Marvel gave Corman a big chunk of money to say – Okay, we're done with the movie. It's edited. It's ready to go, but we're not going to release it. We're just going to put it in a vault somewhere, which upset everybody, you know, below the line of the high up producers, the Corman types. So, you know, the director and the and the stars and they're all completely devastated, heartbroken because they put so much hard work into it and the whole thing just kind of went away. And a lot of them do kind of – you know, looking back, they kind of say that, you know, the writing was a little bit on the wall in terms of how, um, you know, certain things weren't happening. And th there were there were signs of, of just unusual behavior having to do with how the movie was being put together. But they also kind of chalked it off to low, you know, low budget production, Roger Corman. It's also questionable whether or not Roger Corman was committed from the beginning to making this film and putting it out there. Or was it all just a game between him and Marvel to try to get Marvel to offer him money to pull the plug on the film? So he kind of kept continuing the film going, uh, hoping that at some point Marvel will say, all right, here, here's a couple of million dollars or whatever and just stop everything and give us the rights back and, and let's all go on our merry little ways. Who knows? I don't think anybody will admit to that exactly. Suffice it to say that the, the you know the guy in charge of uh, Marvel at that point got the deal done. Everything worked out for the Marvel side, and these guys just moved on to others other roles and you know on uh, throughout their careers. But this does fall under that condition of a film that just never made it, never got made, and ironically it made its way to the convention circuit in terms of bootlegs. And, you know, you could buy a, a, a bad copy version of it, which is bad to begin with, made it even worse. Uh, and some of them actors are even saying, you know, on the interviews, like, this movie has probably gotten more people to see it because of the controversy of it not being allowed to be played than if it would have been played in the first place. It has become such a mysterious thing that more people want to see it now than they probably ever would have if it was released. Very, very interesting documentary. Really, really, again, it's one of these behind the scenes kind of like, what the hell is happening, you know, while this movie's being made? It's really, really, really interesting. The other one that I want to talk about that also falls under that 
category of films that just that were not made is The Death of Superman Lives. Well, this is one that, again, a number of years ago, I remember YouTube videos would have popped up somewhere having to do with some costume fittings of Nick Cage, out of all people, dressed up as Superman, where he was actually involved in the possible making of a Superman film. This is before Superman Returns. Uh, Superman Returns actually came from this failed attempt at making a Superman film. What's happening here at this point is you have the end of the Batman era. Uh, the Batman films are pretty much winding down. You know, the original Burton films now exchanged hands. They're Joe Schumacher, you know, different Batmans, different directors, that sort of thing. And they are looking to see if they could come up with Superman this time around. You know, Superman was there in the past. They wanted to make him different. And there were apparently three different writers that took a crack at the script, including Kevin Smith. He was the first writer. He was, again, on his, I don't know, second, third, fourth film and still writing. Uh, so I think John Peters was the producer, big shot, big shot producer, a character in himself. Somehow Smith is hired and he puts together his version of Superman. And in a way, they're trying to also uh, do it a little different in terms of just like Batman, that kind of got it out of the campy '60s vision of it, and with Batman, they tried to go darker, and they did go darker—not as dark as nowadays, or even Nolan—but they did change it. Uh, but with Superman, they wanted to do something like that too. They didn't want to do a repeat of the Christopher Reeve Superman, so Kevin Smith puts together his version of it, and there is some friction noticeable because of the interviews between Smith and Peters. Peters apparently just likes some of the stuff, doesn't like some of the stuff that Smith puts together. And then at a certain point, the whole thing is handed over back to Burton. And Burton, you know, again, he's got his clout from Batman. You know, they want him to kind of recreate that magic that he did with Batman, but now do it with Superman. And for some reason, he was, you know, he was interested. He wanted to do something different. But Again, going back to that genre. So he kind of takes the Smith script and keeps a few items, very few of them, but does it a different way with another writer. So he's now running along in the, in the process, getting closer and closer to you know what it is that they're trying to do. And by this point, he's doing a lot of conceptual drawings. He's got people drawing like crazy, models, drawings, sketches, that kind of thing. And somehow they hook up with Nick Cage. The studio decides that Nick Cage is a good candidate for this. Not the person that everybody would have thought of, but just like Batman, Michael Keaton was also not the person everybody was thinking of, at least the general public or the fans. There was backlash, I remember, and they talk about it, even though the internet wasn't around yet to that extent, there was a lot of fan backlash that eventually they warmed up to him. But at first, everybody was like, what? Michael Keaton? This is like, you know, the guy from Gun Home, Mr. Mom, you know, what, what is he going to do? But that was kind of what they were hoping with Nicolas Cage in terms of, you know, he he's a wild, crazy kind of actor. He's And he had just done uh, some darker material. So they were thinking, well, maybe that's where we can tap into, you know, that's what we're looking at. Now, keep in mind, uh, Nick Cage already had a pretty 
receding hairline back then, but they were going to have to put a wig on him more or less because this Superman was also based more on the certain batch of comics that they were looking at. You're dealing with a Superman that is older, that is different. He's got long hair and at some point in the comics he dies and then, you know, they were trying all kinds of things to get to kind of spruce up the story. But in this particular story, it involves him dying and then coming back to life again, which is the the whole title, which was supposed to be Superman Lives, which is the one that uh, Smith uh, had kind of cobbled together. So, again, a lot of this is driven by these strange footage that had started to surface and pictures of Cage doing a costume fitting test where he's... He's got this weird Superman outfit on. It's a different color. It's got lights. It's got all kinds of weird things. And it it is even talked about during a segment in the documentary where the host, the guy who's actually interviewing everybody in the documentary, he talks about how at the Superman Return shooting, there was some kind of an argument at some point. And that singer, the director, it's, you know, he opens up his, his notes and his books and he has a large picture of Nicolas Cage in the costume and he's kind of showing it to somebody saying, this is why, you know, we're doing it my way because we don't want it to look like this. You know, this is why it can't look like that. So it was something that had been circulating for a while and people on the inside kind of knew about it and they were making fun of it even back then. And then later on, again, when this footage started circulating on YouTube, that's when people were like, what is this? What the heck is this all about? So a lot of the documentary focuses on how, you know, detail Tim Burton was into this and how much work he put into it. And then the the weird back and forth with Peters and the studios and everything else. And it gets to a point at, at this stage where they actually bring in a third writer. And sooner or later, even Burton completely loses control because they pull the plug on the whole thing. The studios decide they have too many bombs. They have had so many bombs that they didn't want to spend any extra money on it. They were already budgeting this to be a huge budget. And that's when they pull the plug and everybody kind of goes home at that point. So that pretty much wraps up the story in terms of you know, another one of these movies that never got made because the studio at the last minute backed out. A lot of people are left disappointed. Multiple writers are ch- tweaking the story and changing it and that sort of things. Some of the elements you could say kind of fi- found their way to Superman Returns. But overall, you know, the concept or the idea that you could have had somebody like Nick Cage portraying Superman in a completely different looking thing that you've never seen before is something, you know, in, in Hollywood legend, but it's real. It's there. You can you can look it up and, and take a look at for yourself to see. And what's really important is to see the early concept thoughts of how the between the actor and the director, they're kind of massaging the ideas of, well, he could do this, he could do that, he could be more of this, he could be more of that. You know, it is difficult to kind of say to yourself, how could you put Nick Cage? He was too well-known back then. He's still too well-known now. You know, you got to more or less always put an actor that's not very well-known. And that's what they've done in the past, even with the even with Superman Returns, which wasn't a hit or anything. But, you know, Christopher Reeve wasn't that well-known. Roth, I think that's his last name, the guy who did the, the return. Uh, and, and even uh, now with, with the, the more recent ones, Henry Cavill, he wasn't 
pretty well known anyway. So yeah, it does help when he's not very well known. And it, 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 I just think it would have been a little weird. Now, granted, this is the same thing people might have been saying about Michael Keaton, and he turned out to be pretty good. So yeah, it's out there. It's a possibility that it's nice to look at every now and then. Now, on another different type of documentary about film or filmmaking or a specific film, let's take a look at Room 237. This is one that I watched a very long time ago, and I honestly don't remember if I ever talked about it in depth, but this is one that is, it's just fascinating, and it's the type of movie that I started watching, and I'm like going, this is ridiculous, this is ridiculous, but then at a certain point, you're like, wait a minute, wow, that is pretty interesting. And it's all about basically more or less conspiracy theories in terms of what really was meant by making this film. What I'm talking about is The Shining. What this documentary does is that it examines different people's interpretation of the movie The Shining, obviously based on the Stephen King novel. But this one is very special because it's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And what you end up getting here, and I can't, I can't get too deep into it because it, you just have to watch this movie. This is an excellent film. Is all these different versions of what certain film fans, you know, people that actually, you know, that actually like the film, think or theorize that the author or the artist, the director, was trying to convey to the viewer by staging things in a certain way and showing them in a certain manner. Now, I have never heard people going this in-depth with other Stanley Kubrick films. I mean, you figure 2001 would probably be the best one because that's the, the craziest, trippiest one of all. But with The Shining, there is apparently theories about how Kubrick is trying to tell you the plight of the Native Americans by certain images that are being shown throughout the lodge, throughout the actual hotel. There's one that has to do with a certain images of the Minotaur and how that's a prevailing theme in this particular story. Again, it is very trippy. It is very out there. There's another one uh, that has to do with uh, a film that he never got to make, you know, about the Holocaust and how he's trying to kind of start to portray some of those elements, you know, almost subliminally in it. But the craziest, craziest one that just kind of takes the cake and the one that starts to make you think it's like, oh, yeah, look at that. There's something there could be something there which there's not, <laughs> is the one about faking the moon landing. There is this great story that's been floating around for a long time about the faking of the moon landing. But this takes it a step further because it implies that Kubrick was actually the person in charge of filming and, and coming up with the realistic-looking moon landing footage and all that stuff because of his fame of 2001 as if the government said get me the guy who made 2001 and let's let go fake a moon landing with stanley kubrick and what this theory implies is that there's so many hints in the film of kubrick kind of telling us telling the viewers about all these moon landing related you know space program related things that are happening in the film once again this is a bizarre documentary, and it's the type of thing that, again, I went into it, and I am like, this is just ridiculous. It is beautifully shot, and granted, a lot of it, it they are using, obviously, Stanley Kubrick 
footage because they're showing you, they're comparing, you know, they're running the film backwards and forwards and they're showing you all these different things. It's really entertaining. And you go through a certain period in the beginning of the movie where you're like, oh, this is just too much. I mean, what other crackpot theory are they going to throw? Oh, there's another crackpot theory. Okay, here's another. Okay, interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, I see the connection. There's a connection. But then as you get into the middle of it and they start to really get into the deep, <laughs> the deep end of the crazy pool, man, are those really entertaining and you know it's funny because we've we've talked about this in the past and we've approached it in a different manner you know when it comes to star wars you know there's previous episodes that i made a couple of episodes ago i talked about how we like to theorize about things and how we like to rewrite the story about things and how we can come up with all these things this is an extent of that kind of exercise but it is taking to the extreme where by kind of rewriting it, people are believing it. They're coming up with their own, not only narrative, but reality narrative. They're coming up with these theories that are just so nutty, but entertaining. And that's how you can, you know, and that's a way, I guess you can tell how, you know, the, the conspiracy theory machine, you know, that always pops up every now and then succeeds a lot of times in staying in the longevity of it. I mean, we have people to this day that believe that the the moon landing was fake. People believe the earth is flat. You know, you got some really, really nutty, nutty things. And a lot of it is because it's entertaining, I imagine. And in this film, it's so cool how they show it to you. And you know, if you have a group of 10 people, you're going to get some of them that are going to start scratching their head going, but you know what? There might be something to this. <laughs> but it's just, it's just great. And it's, again, this is a different kind of documentary. It is completely different. It is not, uh, you know, the type that, you know, focuses on one person. It doesn't focus on the making of directly. It takes people's reaction to the film that's really, really interesting. And that is a theme that I'm finding that a lot of times there are documentaries that have to do with people's reaction to films. One of them that I just recently viewed that I thought it was completely different, and I ended up watching it anyway thinking it was something else, is called Chuck Norris versus Communism. I thought this was a documentary about all the crazy Chuck Norris films, which is not. <laughs> This is not that documentary. I don't even know if that documentary exists. There's another one I'll talk about in a little bit that touches upon that just a little bit. But what this documentary does is it highlights and it interviews people from Romania, out of all places in the world, who during a certain period, not too long ago, that they were under a dictatorship, you know, a very communist, uh, hardline dictatorship. They were under very, very difficult uh, situations, the, the, you know, the, the unemployment and oppression and people spying on people and the government arresting people, you know, your typical stereotypical kind of, uh, you know, communist bloc controlled country, you know, Cold War, you know, type of scenario. And what they do here is they highlight the fact that one of the things that was very illegal was watching Western films. And they talk about that there used to be this office where they would basically determine whether or not a film could be watched. And they have an office and they do recreations basically of them watching a thing. And all of a sudden they notice, okay, in this scene, in this movie or this TV show, there's a kitchen and a family eating, uh, but there's like a lot of food. And they're like, well, no, let's, we can't show that because if you show that it implies that the West has a so much food and it's, it's, it, it could make people upset here if we see, if they see how other people 
people in the world are are more prosperous. So no, can't show this one. You know, can't show this one. They they mentioned the word God or something like that. Oh, can't show that. You know, no religion. They they weren't, they weren't allowing religion. So what the story tells you is about a black market underground system that they had of getting Western movies, American movies mainly, dubbing them in Romanian. And distributed them internally for people to watch, you know, hidden from the government and from other people. And a lot of it is done through recreations. They do reenactments because obviously you don't have footage of that. But they do have some historical footage of the government and that sort of thing. And they do interview a lot of people that used to do these things. They used to, you know, they talk about how they spent a ton of money trying to get a VCR because they were super expensive. Some people would will bring them in from other countries, you know, because they couldn't afford to buy them there. And how little by little they would get in contact with people who knew how to get these films. And it was almost like selling drugs drugs in terms of a guy would show up with a suitcase and you would have, uh, you know, all of them obviously copied at somebody's house. You know, they're, they're not manufactured. They're not officially dubbed in any, in that specific language. And, you know, neighbors who trusted each other would gather in an apartment, like 15, 20 of them all around a little tiny TV to watch something like, uh, uh, the Terminator or to watch, you know, whatever popular movie of the time happens to be, you know, coming into the country. Chuck Norris films, you know, anything weird like that, you know, like uh, 80s, uh, early 90s kind of stuff. Well, what they also show you in this documentary is that one of the things that a lot of these movies had in common is that they mainly used one voice to do all the dubbing. So in other words, there was a woman's voice that would dub all the characters in a movie. It wasn't like you had different actors, di different voice actors playing different characters. No, it was one, one person. And it was kind of super, super rough because this one person is jumping from one character to the other. They're stepping over lines because they're kind of doing it on the fly, the way you're hearing it. And then they look into, you know, then they show us how that was done. And they talk about how, you know, this woman who used to work for the censor department, who was approached at one point to come in and do it, obviously risking going to jail, but her claim was that she just liked to watch movies. So that was the only way of her to be able to watch movies. Granted, she was getting paid to do it. So she would be brought into this home, somebody's house, you know, this, this guy who was running the, the operation. And she would run uh, the movie and talk into a microphone as the movie was happening and then recorded another one. And then when you had a finished film of her translating the film, you know, she tried to put as much dramatic emphasis as possible, but she wasn't an actress. She was just a translator, more or less. And again, she's doing every part of the movie. And because nothing is being edited, she's doing it, like I said earlier, on the fly. She's just talking as the movie's playing. And they're, and then they, I guess what happened is that would be mixed into another tape where you have, I guess, one channel would be the, the original movie's soundtrack. And then the other channel will be her translation. So when people are watching these tapes at home, they would get that thing. And I imagine her voice would be a little bit louder than the, this way you don't overpower each other. But it's funny because they were talking about how there are certain things she wouldn't do. She wouldn't curse and she wouldn't get into too many sexual references because that's like kind of like where she drew the line. So there were films like, for example, Scarface, which is a <laughs> historically, 
you know, strong language film and how she tried to put her own sayings instead of curses in it. You know, it sounds like a, a bad joke or bad, you know, we've seen them before, how bad sometimes people try to, to uh, cover up the cursing with putting other words that are non-offensive, which is very, very difficult. But one of the things we find out through this film is that the guy that's running the operation, this black market operation, every now and then he would almost get caught and then magically not get caught. So people would be theorizing, you know, what, what's going on here? What's this guy doing? How, you know, how is he getting away with this? And at certain points, the cops come in and they, they raid his place. And then all of a sudden he gives them like a, a certain word and they all leave. So they're thinking maybe he works for the government. You know, maybe he is a, a government. Maybe he's here to arrest all of us. It's, you know, he's, maybe this is some kind of sting operation or something. And by the end of the film, you find out that he even had, because the the system was so corrupt that he had cops coming for him, you know, to him for films. He had government officials. He says he even had the son of the president approach him indirectly to keep him supply with movies. So he was giving everybody movies, selling them to the point where they didn't want him to get caught because he was providing them with a service. And this is, again, this is a typical scenario when it comes to these type of situations where you know that, yes, officially the black market is horrible and you can't buy these things. They're coming from the West, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, they're even getting it and profiting from it themselves. So it's an underground economy that was allowed to so more or less flourish. But yeah, they would catch people, you know, at the tail end of it, they would arrest people and take their stuff away and that kind of thing. But they purposely did not mess with the guy too much because he was providing a service. And by the end of the documentary, we, you know, we get to meet the actual individuals because a lot of times this, like I said earlier, this was being done, portrayed by recreations, you know, by actors, that sort of thing, reenactments. Uh, so this was an interesting, weird one because it was kind of like, wow. And, and it's funny because they talk about, a lot of people talk about how, well, one of the messages of the film is how even, you know, underground videos of classic American films is it was one of the things that would inspire people to revolt, if you will, to want to try something different, you know, people that are oppressed and that sort of thing. How much weight can you put into that? Hard to tell. Dramatically in the documentary, they I think they will try to put more of it than there is not, maybe. They show how kids, after watching some of these films, will go out and start play acting some of these roles. And that is not too uncommon. You know, I, I would imagine that could happen. But I would also imagine that most people would be like, you know, take it easy, you know, cool it, don't show too much, don't let people know too much what you're doing because, you know, we're going to get in trouble for it as, as some people have. So yeah, this was a really interesting, uh, little weird one that I, uh, that I kind of stumbled on. Let me go down the list here a little uh, more because I know I promised I was going to be fast about this, but there's just so many good ones out there, uh, that I want you guys to be able to watch. Another one of these movies that never got made, Jabdowski's Dune. This is a movie about a director a long time ago, who's Chilean, who had done really, really weird, weird artsy films. I think I might have seen one of them, uh, which was a Western. A really strange guy. And he apparently was the first guy to get pretty far in trying to make a film out of the story of Dune, which later was done by David Lynch. 
what's amazing about this documentary is that there is so much conceptual work done. This is one of those films that, similar to the Superman film I was talking about earlier, because they had a director and because he had already started the process of pre-production and, and research and and the art part of it, at least, he had gotten pretty far along in so much design work that was done that when they pulled the plug on it and then later on, you know, they, they threw it on Lynch, you know, it, it was something to, to remember. And this guy, I remember in the documentary, I, I saw this from a while, while back, he had this binder, this huge, huge, you know, huge binder of artwork that is fantastic. And there's two things that you got to keep in mind about this film. This director is weird. He is a weird, weird guy, super artsy. And in a way, you know, when you look at the artwork and you look at the ideas that he had in mind, you kind of start to maybe understand why they chose Lynch later. Lynch almost feels like a, a, a lighter version of this guy. This guy, again, if you watch some of his other films, he is just completely out there. But the artwork was fantastic. He had gathered a whole bunch of artists, you know, European artists, people like A.G. Geiger, you know, before, this is before Alien we're talking about, to help come up with some of these designs. I believe Mobius might have been another one of these artists. Again, these are names that are very familiar to, uh, when it comes to Alien. And what ended up happening was, even though the film was never made, a lot of these artists, and even, and it's also possible that some of the production producers or people involved in this film were also able to springboard from this failed attempt at making a film and were brought into Alien because you do see a lot of this artwork, how it ends up in the Alien side. And it is just an incredible, you know, thing to watch. And again, one of the takeaways as far as I'm concerned is that it's not so much, and this is true to a lot of these films that were never made, the whole process of how these films were never made. But one of the things they have in common, I think, is that when you look at the finished product or the potential finished product, it's not necessarily going to be a good film. <laughs> and who can tell for sure? Nobody can tell. I mean, Hollywood executives, they're basically gambling, you know, on this kind of thing. You have a good feeling about a director. You have a director with a good track record. You know, some of those factors are good in figuring out whether this movie is going to succeed or not. But you just can't tell. And when you listen to these people pitch their ideas, I could imagine that there are people that sound insane pitching whatever their crazy idea is. And the movie either is a complete disastrous failure or a super crazy blockbuster. I don't think there's a formula. It's just the way it goes. It goes one way, it goes the other way. You never really know, you know, which way it's going to go. With that said, you know, yeah, I'm listening to this guy and, and the kind of things he's talking about that he wants to do and the things he wants to portray and knowing his history of the type of films he's done in the past, nothing that has kind of blown me away, at least the one I saw, it's really hard to, to kind of see him being able to pull this off. Granted, even though I have not seen all his films, he does, you know, his track record is not that great, at least here in America. It is possible that for a European market or even a South American market, he might have a, a bigger, broad appeal, and it's a different kind of film. And I know that there are different standards, different tastes, 
cultural tastes, you know, depending on where you live, what part of the world you're from. There are things that just don't translate well, you know, when you bring them overseas. The Asian market is very different than the American market, you know, that than, than the European market, let's say, you know, there, there's just different things that just sometimes don't translate well. But the thing that I love the most about this film is the amazing artwork that was being generated and how he was going to tell his story. It's one of those things that you're like, wow, you know, if this film had been made, you know, would it be a crazier version of Lynch or would it be better, you know, more cohesive? And I find that very, very hard to believe. I just find it very hard to believe that this finished film could have been something better than Dune. And I have a very, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Lynch's Dune. You know, there are things I love and there are things I hate. There's a pace that I despise. The this the, the way things are being told, it just doesn't it doesn't work with me. There's so many confusing factors about the film, but it's one of these films that I can't let go. There's sometimes it'll be playing and I'll start watching it and I'm like yeah, this is interesting. And it's like, oh, that's not good. But then it's like, oh, that, that's really interesting. It's it's a, it's a very, you know, love it and hate it film at the same time. But I can't blame either one because I do love some of Lynch's work. And I do respect the power of the narrative, you know, of the story of Dune. But something went wrong. And I have a feeling it would have gone wrong here, too. When it comes to documentaries about filmmakers you know, where you tap into the making of certain films, but they kind of look at it more in a wider, wider, wider stance. It's more like a bio documentary. And there's a few of them that I watched. One of them is called De Palma and one of them is called Milius. And this is about those two directors, Brian De Palma and John Milius. I watched De Palma because there's a couple of De Palma films that I absolutely love, especially Scarface. And there is very little, as far as I can tell, you know, behind the scenes, documentary making of type of material. But in the process of this one, you get to watch and you get to kind of go through his life. And one of the things that was really interesting in the movie, just like with the one, the other one I'm going to talk about, Milius, is that, you know, De Palma was part of that late 60s, early 70s. San Francisco group, you know, Lucas Spielberg, uh, Scorsese, De Palma, Milius, you know, those guys were the, you know, those original directors that skyrocketed into fame, uh, you know, later on. But this one really gives you a, a good idea of, of his rapid ascension and then his more or less decline as a director. And so does Milius. Milius, you know, I'm a huge fan of Conan the Barbarian, and that's one of his films. The documentary is really good because they talk about how his particular personality kind of influenced the films that he was interested in. While De Palma went into the more the Hitchcock side of horror and suspense and thrillers, uh, which is an easy way to kind of pigeonhole De Palma, especially when he was first getting famous. Milius, on the other hand, kind of was like the even though these are all very liberal individuals in college, he kind of took the conservative right-wingy side and made films like Red Dawn, a very, you know, pro-war-ish kind of John Wayne-y, if you will, kind of films. And Conan, you know, very masculine, you know, what it means to be a man, the physicalness, the, the, the strength, the brute force. And when you hear his 
his interviews, he's really, really committed to these films. It's really amazing. And it's a really sad documentary because, you know, by the, by the end, you kind of start to understand that the, the, the man not only had to stop working, you know, obviously he had his peak and then he had his decline, but then he was, he suffered an illness that prevented from directing. And he had so many more potential movies in him that he could have been doing uh, that he hasn't been able to. But again, it is a way of peeking into uh, some of these favorite films of mine where there is no material, no really, really strong material. But by looking at the bio documentaries of the individuals, you can get a slight glance at that stuff. All right. A couple of other ones I would recommend. Hearts of Darkness. Hearts of Darkness is kind of like the granddaddy of a lot of these making of documentaries not so much because it's your standard making of documentary like i mentioned earlier you know your star wars ones and and the ones i talked about earlier that come usually with a dvd or that sort of thing hearts of darkness was about how insanely difficult maddening (laughs) it was to make apocalypse now uh, this is obviously the, the famous Coppola film, you know, one of his many famous films. But this particular one was chronicled in excruciating detail as to the conditions and all the things that went wrong and the recasting and the just the nightmare scenario where the director himself seems to be kind of like losing his mind in the process. Similar to this one, I would say... You can also have uh, Burden of Dreams and My Best Fiend. These are films by Warner Herzog uh, having to do with the making or the behind the scenes of some of his other films, specifically Fitzcarraldo. Fitzcarraldo was a film he made about this crazy guy who transports a boat like a steamship through the jungle, not the water the jungle in order to bring it to another area because he wants to create like an opera house or something, some weird, I forget exactly why, but it was an insane feat that he was trying to do. And the way that this film was made is also just as insane or even as insane as that in terms of trying to film this insanity. The other film, My Best Fiend, is more about the relationship between him and the star of the film that how crazy the actor behaved at times and how much at each other's throats these two, director, actor, uh, would be. (laughs) It's just insane. Uh, I I know I keep saying the word insane, but that's where these particular documentaries kind of fall under that, if you can even consider them, a sub, 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 sub genre of films that actually do exist, that were made, but so incredibly difficult to do them. Now, another angle that you can kind of take at the behind the scenes is not so much a behind the scenes making of, but a retrospective kind of, of a certain subgenre. Once again, what I'm talking about here is the, the grindhouse subgenre. Uh, this is something that's become very popular, you know, after Tarantino and uh, Robert Rodriguez, especially with, you know, their collaborations and what happened afterwards, you know, all the background stuff having to do, especially with Tarantino's work. There have been a lot of documentaries having to do with Grindhouse. And one of them is called American Grindhouse. And it does chronicle, you know, what is this whole Grindhouse thing about? What, you know, what, what were these films, these very low budget films, you know, you kind of start 
dipping a little bit into Roger Corman territory and even crazier than Roger Corman territory. So, you know, from there, you can kind of jump to something I recently watched called Machete Maidens Unleashed. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's about, it actually has a connection to Apocalypse Now, and it's about the grindhouse uh, sexploitation type of films, you know, from the 70s and, you know, and that period of time that were directly influenced by the Philippines. And that's because just like in Apocalypse Now, when they went to the Philippines to be able to shoot all these crazy films, in the case of Apocalypse Now, just like in a lot of other one of these much lower budget films, the country was very open for filming. They would even have the military cooperate in using military equipment and soldiers to be able to do some of these battle scenes. And, you know, for a long period of time, they made a lot of money. Shoot, they saved a lot of money by shooting in the Philippines. And that had become like a hotspot of filmmaking. Granted, the majority of it was complete, complete trash in terms of some of these films. But it is really, really interesting where these the roots of all of these subgenre films come from and, and the people that actually worked on them. Now, similar to that, you also have Not Quite Hollywood, the wild story of asploitation. What that means is that they're looking at, again, the sexploitation, blaxploitation, or whatever you want to call it, but it's the... Australian version of it, because again, some of these countries, they have full blown, you know, film industries. And just like in our country, they have these, you know, B tier and C tier uh, levels of filmmaking that make a lot of money. And some of them do little by little, they kind of springboard into something a little bigger. And some of them actually do acquire, you know, pretty well known status. But underneath, you know, for every one you know, for every one good film, you probably have about 75 awful ones. And that's one of the things that they, they, they kind of represent here is giving you the background of that sort of thing. Now, with the uh, original intent that I had on watching that Chuck Norris documentary, one that actually touches upon it a little bit more is called Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. This is a really good one because it talks about how you have a studio that is really a, it's a kind of like an in-between studio, let's say. A studio that is uh, slightly above the Roger Corman factory of, of filmmaking, but below the top-tier Hollywood, you know, mainstream, you know, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, you know, that kind of stuff. Somewhere in the between that, and that was Canon Studios. And for a long time, you know, they were able to make a number of films that they weren't exactly blockbusters, but they kind of kept the studio afloat and they made sufficiently, you know, enough money and they would attract a certain caliber, if you will, of actors. But not until all of a sudden they had some hits on their hands that they started kind of playing a little bit with the big boys. So, for example, they did have a lot of junk in there, a lot of, uh, you know, B-level movies, but they had Chuck Norris, and they made a ton of films with him, made the man, you know, a star. Granted, his films, you know, they're typical shoot 'em up uh, you know, the guys, the, the modern version of Clean Eastwood, if you will, the man with no name type of character. That's the, ca that's the persona that Chuck Norris kind of took. And has, you know, exploited and made money out of it in his entire life. However, with Canon, what happened was that they got into a situation where they actually made a couple of pretty successful films. Some of the 
pretty <laughs> B-level films that probably fall under this studio would include things like some of the Death Wish films, the Ninja films, Bolero, if you remember that, the Missing in Action films, again, going back to the Chuck Norris uh, material, Invasion USA, Life Force, the Delta Force, Superman 4, Cyborg, of course, Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, which is what part of this uh, documentary is named after, Lombada, where they try to <laughs> recreate the magic of the latest dance craze, you know, Invaders from Mars, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, there's a lot of stuff. Masters of the Universe, you guys remember that. Again, with this particular movie, it was with, I think it might have been with Breaking. That's the one that probably you know, got them thinking that they were into something big. And, you know, for a brief period, you know, you got to remember also studios like, for example, New Line Cinema uh, at the time uh, were studios that were kind of, again, flying under the radar. And then all of a sudden they get a big hit with like Nightmare on Elm Street. So all of a sudden they become players. They're actual players in the game. But with Canon, this is what, you know, these guys were kind of pumping out at the time. And, uh, you know, they made a pretty good living out of it. There's actually another documentary that I would mention having to do with the same story of, you know, the behind the scenes Canon, especially the, the two brothers, the, the Golan brothers, who were the ones that um, ran Canon uh, for a very long time. It's called The Go-Go Boys, The Inside Story of Canon Films. I think between those two documentaries, you can probably uh, get a really good feel of what these, uh, you know, mid-level studios were like at the time, you know, of these type of films. Again, these kind of films, you know, they're, they're cheesy, they're bad, but they're kind of like uh, comfort food. They're candy. They're guilty pleasures, if you will. But, two, you know, those are two really good documentaries about that. Now, there's also a lot of documentaries out there. You know, if you're in, again, when you go to the Grindhouse side, you also kind of start overlapping with the martial arts side. And there's a number of documentaries about the history of martial art films. One that I would point out to you that might be easy to find, it's called The Art of Action Martial Arts in Motion Picture. This one's narrated by Samuel Jackson. And he, it's really cool because, first of all, he is a fan, I believe, of traditional martial arts films, going back to the Shaw Brothers and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, nowadays, I have a channel here. It's funny because uh, when I first moved to Florida, before moving to Florida, when I was visiting, I was watching cable at my parents' house, and all of a sudden, they have El Rey Network, which is a network that I didn't have back up north in, in Jersey under my, oh, what was it, Verizon Fios I used to have in Jersey. Here I have Xfinity, which is Comcast. And it's like, wow, this channel is great. They were showing martial arts films. They were showing repeats of like Knight Rider and Star Trek and Buck Rogers and, you know, all really weird retro-y kind of stuff. But they did go crazy with the martial arts films. And uh, when I finally moved here, I was like, that's it. I don't care whatever company it is that's available. As long as it has El Rey Network, that's what I'm getting. <laughs> so I ended up getting it. And yes, it's great because any time of the day, you can usually find some classic martial arts films, the type of stuff that I used to watch when I was young, not in the movie theater because I wasn't part of that crowd, but on channel, uh, either channel five or channel 11 are uh, syndicated uh, channels, you know, syndicated independent channels. Saturday, it was Saturday 
afternoon, I believe, they would show some channels would show some crazy, again, B-level sci-fi stuff. And and then you had Kung Fu Theater, I think it was called or something like that, which was like one or two uh, karate films, you know, uh, martial art films back to back. And it's an entire world. I mean, there are so many different famous directors within the genre, obviously. But these documentaries, just like this one that I mentioned, the one that's hosted by Samuel Jackson, you know, you start to see all of these influences in in modern films, uh, even in the last 20 years, that take their cues originally from these older films, you know, uh, modern stuff like John Woo films, you know, The Matrix, all kinds of stuff like that, more super modernly great films like The Raid, and all of this new style martial arts that are, you know, that start to kind of percolate into movies here or there. It's like, ooh, all these different weird fighting styles. Hey, guess what? They're all coming, you know, from this older version of filmmaking, very different, somewhat cheesy at times, but it's, you know, it's a whole other culture. But wow, there's some really good stuff out there. And I definitely, you know, like I said, there's there's many of them out there, but that's one that could probably open the, you know, the floodgates for you. Now, if your taste is a little more in the musical side of filmmaking, there was uh, one documentary I saw called Score, a film music documentary. And again, this is one that gives you the basics of what is the purpose of the score, who are the players these days, what is the history of, of some of the bigger players in the past, but how, you know, influential, you know, how important it is the, the score of a film uh, where you kind of, a lot of times, kind of, Kind of throw it in the background, no pun intended, it's in the background, but, you know, how the process works and all that stuff. Again, another great, very niche kind of examination of one little aspect of just typical filmmaking. There's a couple more that I have not seen yet, and I am going to try to work on seeing them, so maybe one day I could review them. Uh, one of them is Full Tilt Boogie, which is the making of uh, From Dust Till Dawn, which is, again, the, the Tarantino-Rodriguez collaboration. And then there's the one called The Shark is Still Working which is about the making of Jaws. Uh, and from what I understand, that's also a very, very good documentary, you know, chronicling all the crazy happenings with that mechanical shark that we all love. Oh, and one more I want to add that I did see, one called Back in Time. And I might have mentioned that before when I did my Back to the Future special. This is one that, again, it's a typical making of, you know, happy making. But what makes it a little different as far as Back to the Future is that they were able to use a lot of the footage of the Eric Stoltz scenes that were shot before Michael J. Fox took over that role. Granted, it has some kind of shaky uh, elements, you know, when it comes to the fan side of the film, where they kind of spend a little too much time on that. However, they do get some of the heavy hitters of the film to participate and they do get their hands on, are able to show, you know, some of these different scenes that were shot and how different of a tone you start to feel the film would have had if they would have kept Eric Stoltz and not Michael J. Fox. Again, if you're more interested in Back to the Future, I suggest listening to that other episode that I did because it does have a lot of the behind the scenes story of what actually went wrong with that particular actor. So anyway, I gave you guys a ton, a ton of options here uh, when it comes to documentaries. And specifically, like I said, documentaries that are a little different than your standard straight documentary. A real amount of good stuff here. A lot of this I was able to find on Netflix, Amazon Prime, the internet, YouTube. You know, a lot of this stuff is out there. It doesn't really take a brain surgeon to figure it out, how to get them and, uh, you know, be able to see them. So hopefully I'll return at some point with some more documentaries. 
right. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We took a look at quite a number of film documentaries, all of them taking different views and different approaches having to do with a specific film. So you have plenty, plenty, plenty to pick from. And I'm sure that we're going to have much more in the future, hopefully enough to make another show out of it and be able to recommend them to you. So on behalf of everybody here at our show, thanks for listening. And we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. fue tremenda. I wanted to make something sacred. Una película que diera las alucinaciones de LSD. Si tomara LSD to change the young mind of all the world. Michel Siduc said to me, I want to make a new picture with you. What do you want to do? I say, Dune. And he said, yes. C'était le plus beau livre de science-fiction. C'est la Bible de la science-fiction. Succès d'édition mondiale. I didn't read Dune, but I have a friend who said it was fantastic. 3,000 drawings. I shoot the picture. Point of view. Movement of the camera. Dialogue. Designing the spaceships, the clothes, the whole look of his world. The castle. Open the mouth. Uh, the spaceship came in the tongue. His vision was so huge, so beyond what anybody else was doing at that time. Things that George Lucas wasn't even going to try with Star Wars. It's enormous. Part of Hollow's genius was finding the right people. David Carradine, Mick Jagger, Dali as the Mad Emperor of the Galaxy. Dali, they can I have a burning giraffe? All right, all right, we'll have burning giraffe. Or somewhere. Yeah, I say, I don't want to do it. I say, if you do the picture, I will hire the chef of the restaurant and you will eat as here every day. And I say, I do it. Giger nunca había hecho películas. I say to Giger, I need you as you are. Alejandro completely motivated you. It was wonderful. We will change the world. People did not do this film because they were afraid of his imagination. This is a movie that has its fingerprints all over so many other movies. Blade Runner, William Gibson, Matrix. Giger, he made the monster of Alien. And Hollywood started to use my group. It always leads back to Jodorowsky. Could be fantastic, no? If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com, or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>